Grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, then we should have uh, a Bible in a pew in front of you. And uh, it says the story on top of it. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for that to be your very first one. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. Uh, what we ask in return is that when you get home, there's some parts of the pages there in the beginning that uh, are printed in color. If you would read those when you get home, it would tell you a little more about what we believe is kind of the grand story of the whole thing. And so we would ask you to uh, read those as you get home, but you can turn in that Bible to page 760, uh, or in your Bible, it's probably not the same page number, but you can turn to Acts chapter 9, and there's no shame in using the table of contents if you need to. Uh, this, this week, we will kind of ramp down, uh, in a sense, a, a transition of uh, it's been like a couple series, and you may feel like we've been all over the place since Easter, but there really has been kind of a thread and a purpose to where we've gone since Easter. Coming out of the week after Easter, we started talking about the grand narrative of the Old Testament and how all these things point to one great truth. And so, so if you have not been here since Easter, or if you have fallen asleep or ignored most of what I've said, I can summarize everything I've said since Easter in one statement, God can redeem anyone from anything at any point. All right, I want you guys to say that with me. All right, one, two, three. God can redeem anyone from anything at any point. This is a truth that you need to get. But the other truth that I don't have up on the screen that you got to get is all these stories. We've talked about Moses and how he murdered somebody. We've talked about David and his adultery. We've talked about Noah. We've talked about all these Old Testament stories, the whole Exodus story and all these things that we've talked about, really one of the things we've tried to constantly point us back to is that they're not about those guys, but who are they about? All, every one of those stories is about one person. Who? Jesus. Like the simplest, look, if, when you're in church and somebody asks a question, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. And you got a pretty good odds of getting it right. So let's try that one more time. All these stories that we looked at since the End of Easter, even Easter was obviously about Jesus as well, but every story we look at in the Bible is all about one person. Who is that one person? Jesus. There we go. Now, now I feel like you meant it. Now I feel like you know what we're talking about today. But you can't miss that point as we look at the story today. It's a very familiar story as we look at the conversion of Saul, or you may know him as Paul. Well, I wanted to talk about another story too, kind of in contrast, because you've got the story of Saul who really things were headed in, in the world's eyes in the right direction for Saul. And then he was interrupted by an encounter with Jesus. And, and by the world's standard, everything went bad from there. See, when we look at the story of Saul, uh, it, it's easy to think about the fact that he persecuted Christians and think maybe he's this horrible person. But what you got to get is this was a, this was, this in many respects, this was a really good dude. Like Saul was a guy who followed all the rules, man. Like he didn't climb the ladder, uh, the, the, his, his corporate ladder of, of religion by, by stepping on other people. I mean, he did it by being smart, by being highly educated, by, by kind of following all the rules, by having a deep fear of God and letting that lead and guide his life. But he was still misguided. And we need to understand on that, that it is not sincerity that brings salvation because we can be very sincere and very wrong, right? And so it's not sincerity. I wanted to contrast that with another story today. Um, probably, if Paul's story is one of the most famous conversions in the world, one of the most famous hymns in the world is what? What would you say is the most famous hymn in the world? Amazing Grace, right? Who, anybody know? Who wrote Amazing Grace? Anybody know? Say it. John Newton. Not Isaac Newton, John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And what you need to understand is, is John Newton very much contrast with our, our, our story today of Saul, whereas Saul was highly educated, had this deep fear of God, was really had a name for himself. John Newton actually only went to school for two years. He was born to a Puritan woman and a rough sailor. How those two ended up together, I don't know. It just seems like that theme has continued to today where pretty smart, godly young ladies end up marrying idiots. And I don't know why that continues to happen over and over. I'm glad my wife did the same thing and God redeemed me. But we see that pattern. This great Puritan woman marries this rough sailor. 
And, and then and she would teach John scripture, and, and she would talk to him through catechisms and, and all these things. But she died when he was six or seven years old. And so he ended up living most of his life on the sea. And, and raised by his father, and then kind of even some bad relationships there. And, and he ended up working on slave ships, and then he ended up being forced into the Navy. Uh, and, and in that process, he only went to school for two years, so not highly educated, not, not a great name for himself. He'll tell you in his own writings later that he had zero fear of God. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, he was such a bad person, he said he got most of his pleasure and joy out of leading other people astray. That he, like, he didn't, he wasn't just a bad guy himself doing stupid things himself. Like, he really enjoyed kind of leading other people to make bad decisions as well. And so, when we look at these two stories contrasted, we, it really illustrates our point that we've been talking about ever since Easter that God can redeem anyone from anything at any point. Say amen if you think that's true. All right, so grab your Bible. Acts chapter 9, stand with me, the reading of God's word. And let's read together. We're going to read all the way through verse 23. <clears throat> but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes. And he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name, and he has not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the, before the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we look at this story today, I pray that we would not come away with just a neat story or new insights for our knowledge or our journals. But Lord, we would be overwhelmed and transformed by your grace that redeems us. Lord, I pray that you would speak you would transcend my time of study and my knowledge, Lord, that you would speak 
through me, as a broken vessel, you would use me. Lord, that people would hear your voice in their hearts and not mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So whether your story is more like Saul's, right, and you... You've always been the good kid. You've always been the good person. You've always followed the rules. You've always kind of, you, maybe when you hear other people's testimonies about them, you know, being addicted to crack and, and, and murdering people and, and you kind of like, maybe I, I've heard from people like, maybe there's like this temptation to like, man, I kind of wish my testimony was like that. I kind of wish I had like this powerful piece to my testimony. Or maybe, maybe you are that guy. Maybe you're more like John Newton and maybe like there's just some crazy shady stuff in your past. And the very fact that you could stand before the Lord at all is, is evidence of his grace and mercy. What I want you to see today is whether your story is like one of those or just somewhere in between. That is no less dramatic. While both of those maybe make good movies and maybe good books and fun stories, your story of, of redemption is no less dramatic than either of these men. What you need to understand is that Redemption is not just an act of taking a bad person and making them a good person. Right? I think so often when we think about Christianity, that's the level that we're thinking on is that, man, that was such a bad dude and now he's such a good guy. And that's a cool part of the story. But you've got to get that your, your sinful nature... Right, Romans chapter 5 talks about how sin was imputed upon us. We like inherited from our first father, Adam, the sinful nature of us. And so we've got that sin in us as well, but we also choose to do it, even if that wasn't passed on. And so either way, we stand in this position of a desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you were, Ephesians, Paul tells us later, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and through God's great riches of mercy... He brought you alive in him, right? Can we get an amen on that? Like that's, that is, listen, that is a dramatic story. Whether that happened to you at nine years old when you hadn't done much, maybe, maybe you accomplished a lot by nine. Wait, whether that happened then or whether you came straight out of the penitentiary where you had just murdered somebody and you got out and, and, and the grace of Jesus just washed over you, whether your story is like any of those. If your story has the elements we're going to talk about here in a minute of, of what it really means to be redeemed, then it is a dramatic and powerful story, not about you, a dramatic and powerful story about who? Who's the one person? Jesus. A dramatic story about Jesus' redeeming grace for us. Just this story of Paul, Paul even tells us that his redemption, Paul's redemption is a picture of Christ's perfect patience on display. Paul's redemption, on your bulletin, you'll see that. Paul's redemption is a picture of Christ's perfect patience on display. Look at verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still, still breathing threats and murder, right? So you'd have to go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, where you see, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, is what it says in chapter 8. That word, ravaging means like a wild and ferocious beast. So this is not some calm, bureaucratic, like knock on the door, you're under arrest, read you your rights, like, like a wild beast. He's like kicking in doors, dragging out men and women, throwing them into prison, all for following Jesus. And he's, and he's just, when it says that breathing, it means like, like he's finding his purpose, his sustenance off of this very purpose. And so you may go, man, how does such a good dude flip and go so bad? What you understand is he hasn't necessarily flipped in his mind. Like he's thinking back, right? He's thinking back to 1 Kings 18. He's thinking back to Elijah against the prophets of Baal and how they have, what a powerful story, right? Where he says, look, man, you think your God's real? Let's both build altars. Let's call upon our gods to light these things on fire. If yours light's on fire, great, your God's real. If, but if my light's on fire, my God's real. And so they, they dance, they sing, they cut themselves, they do all these things. He takes water in the middle of a drought and pours it all over his altar to make it super wet. Calls on God, God drops some fire on there, licks up all the water. And then like, that's the fun kid part of the story. And then like, but, but then Elijah goes and kills all the rest of the prophets of Baal. Right, this is what, this is what Saul's thinking. Saul's thinking like, I'm stepping up. 
Like, I'm doing it for real. Like, I'm going to defend the honor of Yahweh serious. And anyone who stands with this blasphemous claim of this risen carpenter, they're going to pay for it. And so think about that in the patience. When we were in our Bible study group this morning, we were talking about, like, would it have been wrong of God to just strike Saul down right there? Like, when he showed up on the road to Damascus, what if instead of saying, hey, why are you persecuting me? And hey, go in here and I'm gonna have somebody heal you and turning him around and redeeming him and use him. What if God would have just been like, hey man, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? I'm Jesus who's about to kill you. And he just like dropped him right there on the road to Damascus. Like, what if it went down like that? Would, would God have been wrong? No. He wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have, it, it is still preached, right? It is preached a little differently than the story we're looking at today. It had been more like the Ananias and Sapphira story where they, they sold things and, and didn't claim the truth on it and, and boom, we see some things there. But not, not today. Unbelievable patience we see. Right? As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul says this when he writes a letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 12-17, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. Listen to this. That in me, as the foremost of all sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Say it with me. Amen. See, even Paul's telling you here, I mean, my story's incredible. Like, I was, I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent. I was a persecutor. So, so why did God save me? For this reason, God saved me, to put his perfect patience on display. See, even Paul is telling you, when you read Acts chapter 9, when you read his retelling of his own story in Acts 22 and Acts 26, when you read that, he doesn't want you to look and go, how cool is Paul? He says, I was, I was so against God. That my story, the fact that he would even show me grace, is an unbelievable display of Christ's perfect patience, complete patience, as well as it is in your story, right? See, that blasphemer, John Newton, later, many years later, uh, became a pastor. Uh, And I'll tell you some more of his story as we go, but one one of the ways he would always refer to himself was the old African blasphemer. Because he was cast, he was cast out onto, an, he was stranded on an island off of West Africa and actually became a slave below the slaves um, there on, on this island off of West Africa. And to the point that even slaves were, the African slaves were like sneaking food out of their small rations to feed him because nobody was taking care of him. And he was treated so low, but he was so against God that when he was 80-something years old and could barely see and could barely hear, his best friend was like, hey, man, it might be time to stop preaching. And he said, oh, if the old African blasphemer still has words to say, can still speak, he will always speak of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. He always saw himself as a blasphemer redeemed by God. I think sometimes we have a temptation to think about when Jesus saved us and then And then if we're honest, sometimes in our hearts we're like, man, I bet he's glad he saved me. I'm a pretty decent person. Do you still see yourself as that blasphemer? Do you still see yourself? Do you see that you were an insolent opponent? Do you see that Romans 8 says you were a hostile enemy against God? That it puts you and Saul on the same plane when you read Romans chapter 8? That you were a hostile. And you weren't, and listen, before you came to Christ, you weren't indifferent to him. You may have thought you were, but you weren't indifferent. You were a hostile enemy of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So what is redemption? What does it require? What does it mean? Redemption requires a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. 
personal encounter. As we look at the story, Jesus in his sovereign wisdom and will doesn't, doesn't send Ananias to share the gospel with Saul, but just to affirm it. Jesus chose with this enemy to show up. And listen, someone else's truth, although, although I'm not saying you need to have this blinding moment on the road to Damascus because that'd be a lot of airfare to travel all the way over there and get on that. The road's still there, but you don't have to get on the road to Damascus. You can right now, right here. You don't even, listen, you don't even have to wait till the invitation. You don't even have to wait till the end when we start singing songs. But you have to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Like you, and when you have that personal encounter with Jesus Christ, here's some things that are going to happen. Redemption requires confrontation. Look at verses 3 through 5 in Acts 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, it may seem that Saul's conversion here is instantaneous. But later, when he tells his own version of the story in Acts chapter 26 and Acts chapter 22, he uses an interesting phrase that he brings up more of what Jesus said. So this doesn't record everything because later he says that Jesus said that you had tried to kick against the goads, but you couldn't. What that means, the, the goads, he's talking about a way that people would, would guide horses and, and the, the horses with, the, with these goads, and the horses would get mad and try to kick back and catch that goad, but they couldn't get it. And so Jesus is telling him, like, look, I, I've been wooing you to me for a little while. I, and I got to think, it doesn't say it, but I got to think that moment from Acts 7 when he's standing there as Stephen, he's holding all the coats as Stephen, the first martyr, is being murdered, and Stephen delivers this unbelievable sermon. If you haven't read it, if you missed all of the redemption series from Easter till now, if you'll just go read Acts chapter 7, then Stephen does a really good job of being real concise and kind of telling you that whole story. He starts with Moses and the prophets, just like Jesus said he did on the road to Emmaus. And he goes through all this Old Testament history and tells you how it all points to who? Who's the one person? Jesus. How it all points to Jesus. And I, I got to imagine this is one of the goads that Jesus was talking about. You try to kick against the goads. Or maybe as he's dragging men and women out of their homes, maybe they were praying over him. Maybe they witnessed to him. Maybe they shared. Maybe, maybe with that same patience that Stephen had given supernaturally by Jesus Christ, they, they shared with him as he drugged them out of their homes. And maybe the Holy Spirit was just constantly goading him. And now at this moment, he has this encounter and he is confronted directly with his sin. When you have a redeeming salvific, bringing salvation encounter with Jesus Christ, you will be confronted with your sin. If you weren't confronted with your sin and it was just, hey, do you want to go live in heaven with your grandparents? That wasn't redemption. It wasn't salvation. A a key part of, of your redemption story has to be a confrontation of your sin. There's a moment where you've got to realize you are the old blasphemer. You are the insolent opponent. You are the persecutor. You are the enemy hostile against the gospel, hostile against Jesus Christ. You've got to be confronted with your sin by the risen Christ, Jesus. That's a part of it. That's got to be a part of the story if you are redeemed. If that wasn't part of your story... It wasn't redemption. It was some sort of philosophical adherence to a moral code. And I need you to understand today, this was not a shift in Paul's moral code. This was not some moment where Paul goes, you know, I used to think this way, now I think this way. This was a transformative encounter with the risen Lord. See, he thought Jesus was dead. He was convinced Jesus was dead and that all this was a lie. And so when he says, who are you, Lord? That word for Lord can be Lord or Sir. I'm going to argue that he says, Sir. He might be saying, Lord, maybe he thinks it's God speaking. So he says, Lord, either way, I'm pretty sure he doesn't think it's Jesus. 
And all of a sudden, the answer had to be bone-chilling for him. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I kind of wish I had like a James Earl Jones voice so I could like just drop that, I'm Jesus. Like, just the impact of that moment for him. And then he says, then he reminds him, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ? Have you been confronted by your sin, by the very fact that you were an enemy against him? Redemption requires an understanding of our sin. And then redemption requires a surrender to the Lord. Acts 9, 6 and 9, we see Saul surrender. Jesus gives him some instruction. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now some commentaries say that he didn't eat or drink because he couldn't see. I'm going to argue against that. When I was a kid on family vacation in the mountains... I got poison oak on my forehead. And somebody, I don't even know who, somebody said, hey, put a warm rag on your forehead. It'll make you feel better. And I, I mean, it did. It did make me feel better. But you know what happened? I fell asleep. And that rag slid down my face. And next thing I know, I wake up and I can't see. I could open my eyes like Saul, but I could not see. There was a bubble of poison oak over my eyes. And I was blind for three days, just like Saul. Now, totally different circumstances. I'm going to tell you something. I still ate food. I still drank some things. I had people put food in front of me with a fork. And I I didn't, look, I'm not going to go three days without eating just because I can't see. I think he went three days without eating and drinking because he just had this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ who he was convinced was dead. And so now he's going, Lord, you got to speak before I do anything. He was in a full position of surrender. Redemption requires that. Redemption is not halfway. Redemption is not just an adherence to ideas. Redemption requires surrender and repentance. It requires that we, we repent from our sins, that like Saul, we, we are headed one direction and we turn the other direction. Now, he still went the same direction, but with an entirely different purpose. So redemption requires that we repent of our sins. It requires that we understand that we've been given a new direction. And again, redemption is not, conversion is not an adherence or alignment to a moral code. Here's, here's where Christianity actually stands out from pretty much every other religion out there. Almost every other religion out there, for the most part, is okay with being included maybe with some other things. Right? They, they want to give you a moral code, some sort of direction on how to have a better life, some sort of direction on how to gain a blissful eternity, some sort of direction on how to, to get something good in the end. And, and I think sometimes we have undersold the gospel to be the same thing. Sometimes we've undersold the gospel to just be a ticket to heaven and, 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 and just to make you a better person. If you'll follow Christianity, you'll go from being a bad person to a good person. You'll have no moral code to having a moral code. Some sort of guidance in your life. Listen, there is some guidance in here, no doubt. But if you think that what this book is about is a list of things for you to do and a list of things for you not to do, you are missing the gospel. And Paul is the perfect example of that, right? Because he did it. He did the moral code. You Listen, you can't do the moral code better than he did. I promise you. Matter of fact, he says that later. We'll get to that verse. He says, you can't do it better than I did. It's not a moral code. This is a transformation. Redemption, what is the result of redemption? It's transformation. Redemption results in transformation. From being condemned to commissioned. Acts 9, 10 through 16, Saul is commissioned. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, which has got to be super cool, right? For Ananias, like you're a new believer in Jesus because everybody at this point that's a believer is a new believer. You're a new believer in Jesus and all of a sudden, all of a sudden Jesus, like, like he did Samuel, shows up and is like, hey, Ananias. And you go, I'm not going to do like Samuel. I'm, I'm not going to ignore it and think it's somebody else. He's like, uh, I'm, I'm right here. I'm, here I am, right, right here. What do you need? And, and it, I, in my mind, he's super excited to hear from the Lord. Maybe I'm wrong, but in my mind, he's super excited. Here I am, Lord. Like, whatever you need, I'm going to do it. And then the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. All right, I got you. And at the house of Judas, cool, not that Judas, different Judas, look for a man of Tarsus. Okay, Tarsus named Saul. Uh, Saul from Tarsus? Yeah, he's going to be there. For behold, he is praying. That's great. I'm glad he's praying. Um, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Oh, you gave him my name. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate that, Lord. Not the guy I wanted to have my name. You didn't give my address, did you? Come in and lay his, he had this vision of a man named Ananias coming and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Oh, good, he's blind. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem and how, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to be my display of perfect patience, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay, so you are going to make him suffer. That's good. So Ananias gets this call, and he goes to take this commission to him. We change from being condemned to commissioned, from being hostile enemies to ambassadors from being menaces to ministers. We are transformed by the gospel from foe to family. Catch this. There's one word in here that is beautiful in grace. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Everybody say brother. First word. Saul hears from another believer who he has been trying to persecute after this is brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not following a moral code. It is, it is redemption, it is transformation and you are no longer a spectator in what God is doing. You are now a participant in God's family. Take a moment and look around you. Everybody, look around. Look around. Can you, can you think through in your mind as you look around five people who you don't even know their name? Yeah? Anybody? Let's just go ahead and be honest. Raise your hands. Are there five people in here you don't know their name? Okay. This is your family. Listen, this is your family. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Me and my wife, so several weeks back, we had a family meeting, which we'll discuss kind of business stuff. We'll have those periodically. And one of the things I challenged everybody in that family meeting to is I said, when we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that the, that the believers devoted themselves to a handful of things. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to prayer and the breaking of bread. As you continue on, you see how that kind of plays out more practically. And, and so I said, listen, I, I think one of the healthiest things we can do for this church is get around dinner tables together. So me and my wife over the last several months have had, I don't even know how many, I tried to count up my head today, and I think it's over 20 since then, over 20 different people around dinner tables together. And we, we've been having people over to our house, and we've been going over to their houses, and we've been going out to eat and spending time just getting to know each other. Right? People, people, people that we know, but maybe we just don't spend a lot of time with, the people that we don't know, all kinds of things. Then can I encourage you to, to be thinking through over the next month or so, who, who are a few people that you could have over to your house for dinner? 
that you could take out to lunch after church? Like people maybe, like who are just people you could after church is over? Hey, I don't know your name. What's your name? Could we get together sometime, even for just a cup of coffee? And let me hear your story. Let me hear how God redeemed you. Can I tell you how God redeemed me? Can we encourage each other, lift each other up, devote ourselves to each other, to the fellowship of each other? See, it's not going to be a meet and greet time that's going to bring community to this church. It's not going to be even the fifth Sunday fellowships that we have. Those are not the things that will bring a sense of community to this church. It'll be you having people around your dinner table together and saying, brother, and not, not brother because like I can't remember your name, right? Not like, well, I'll just call her sister, right? Hey, sister, how you doing? But be in family together. Because we are transformed from a foe to family, from darkness to light. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. We go from darkness to light. Paul himself would later write to the Corinthian church this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we, for what we proclaim. You studied this in your Bible studies this morning, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is not just a moral code. This is not just a religious system. This is not some philosophy that you are to mentally and intellectually align yourself to. This is a radical transformation, a conversion. You go from being something to something else entirely. No longer used for those purposes, now with a new purpose. We, we go from being in the darkness, blinded by the, by the enemy of, of Jesus, blinded by the, by the devil, the ruler of this world, blinded to the good news of the gospel. You ever shared the gospel with somebody and they just blatantly rejected it? They're blinded. They can't even see the truth of the gospel. But you, ever, you ever gotten to see somebody have that moment, right? Whether it was in a service or you were sharing the gospel with them or somebody else and you have that moment where all of a sudden... You see it. You see them see it. You see them just see it. All of a sudden, it just becomes truth for them, like the light just turned on. They went from darkness to light and recognized. They were confronted with their sin, right, by the risen Jesus Christ that defeated death. They, they understood their need for the grace of Jesus Christ. They surrendered. They repented. And like, like a light turning on, they go from darkness to light. We go from enemy to evangelist. Acts 9, 19 through 22. And taking food, so he finally ate, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Again, that idea from foe to family. So the first thing he does is spend some time with his new brothers and sisters. That he's holding, catch this, he's holding extradition papers. The word in the Greek is epistles, letters. He's holding letters used for the purpose of condemning and imprisoning people who call on the name of the Lord. And then later God uses him to write what? Letters. The majority of the New Testament is now letters written by the man who was carrying letters to imprison those who would later read his letters. You see that transformation? The powerful transformation of the gospel, the redemption of Jesus Christ. He goes from being this enemy to an evangelist. And he immediately, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Notice the clarity at which he speaks this. When we speak the gospel sometimes, I think out of fear of being offensive because of the exclusivity of the gospel, we, we like to water it down some. We like to, to temper it down and just talk about, do you, do you want God in your life? 
I remember going to a youth camp one time with some youth. I, I did not arrange the youth camp. I had just become the youth pastor. And we go to this youth camp that I had not arranged. And on, on Thursday night, because that's when they share the gospel at youth camp, on Thursday night when they turn the lights down low, they get real emotional, and, and they come after you. This guy, this was his gospel presentation. He said, do you want your life to be a blockbuster hit? If your life were a movie, would anybody watch it? Why don't you ask God to be your director tonight? Raise your hand if you'd like God to be your director. You'd like your life to be a blockbuster hit. Almost everybody's hands went up. Why would you not raise your hand? Who, who wouldn't think? Yeah, that, that sounds cool, right? Right? Or, or we simplify it down to like, do you want to go to hell forever or do you want to go to heaven? Right? We just simplify it to that. Well, I mean, that's an easy choice. But do you recognize how clear he is here he says he is the son of god in that context of that synagogue that was a blasphemous traitorous wild statement he is very clear jesus is who he claimed to be and all who heard him were amazed and said isn't this the guy who made havoc in jerusalem of those who called upon his name. And didn't he come here like to do that? Didn't he come here with that purpose to bring them and bound them before the chief priest? Isn't this that guy? Like, isn't this the guy we heard the wild stories of, of kicking down doors and dragging people out of their houses? And didn't he like come here with papers to do that? Now, now this guy's standing before us and saying that Jesus is the son of God. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What a radical and immediate transition in Saul's life. You ever met anybody that just like, um, like I've got friends who, man, when they, when they became Christians immediately, like everything just changed. That's not my story. And it may not be your story. Mine's more like John Newton's. So John Newton is, he is forced, he's forced into slavery and he gets, he escapes um, because a guy drops anchor near his island, and it happens to be a buddy of his dad. And so he climbs onto that ship uh, after being emaciated and for years being on this island. And then for a year out at sea, because this guy's got some work to do out at sea on this ship, he starts reading about Jesus and then and all these things, remembering the things that his mom told him when he was a little boy. And then right as they're getting almost to land, finally in Scotland where he's going to land, this crazy storm comes. The ship is about to sink. And he has to spend a good like 40 hours without sleep trying to keep the, the, the ship from sinking. He's helping do that. And then out of nowhere, he cries out to God. And God literally saves the ship from the shipwreck. And he's like, he, he pulls that bargain with God, right? He's like, all right, God, if you'll, if you'll save me here, I'll, I'll give you the rest of my life. Right? Those usually don't hold. Right, and so he ends up still working slave ships for many years. And it wasn't until many, many years later, or not many, many, until some years later that he really, really started to grasp the gospel and fall in love with Jesus, that he wrote a little, a little pamphlet about the African slave trade. He became friends with William, William Wilberforce. You heard that name? William Wilberforce, who was the guy who so bravely went after British Parliament to see slavery abolished in, in England. John Newton got to see that happen. He got to see that happen. He got to be a part of that and partner with William Wilberforce to be a part of that, even though he had this slower transition, right? And so whether your transmission, maybe, maybe your transition hasn't happened, and obviously we don't reach that completely until glory. But notice that Paul not only is transformed in all those great ways, whereas, whereas John Newton literally was living in just slums and, and slavery and debauchery and evil and no fear of the Lord and no name for himself, no honor, no glory, then, then all of a sudden he comes to Christ and, and, and John Newton's, even by the world standards, life gets much, much better. He, he gets married to the love of his life and 
and he gets to pastor for 40-something years, and he writes a whole bunch of hymns, and one of them is one of the most famous ones today. And, and so this great transition in John Newton's story where if you're, if you're doing his movie, it ends with, and everything was happily ever after. It's not Saul's story. Saul goes from having this honor and glory to being shipwrecked. From being the persecutor to being persecuted. Pretty quickly, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. I mean, he's there in Damascus, he's sharing the word, and it's really not too long until all of a sudden things start going downhill for him. Paul's tenacity in the midst of that persecution. Paul's, this is on your bulletin, Paul's tenacity is a testimony to the transforming power of the treasure principle. Paul's tenacity is a testimony to the transforming power of the treasure principle. When I say the treasure principle, I mean Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the kingdom of heaven is realizing that everything that God has to offer is better than everything you already have. Paul says this later in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, in the first few verses of that chapter, he, he really lays out his resume. Some things we've talked about, his pedigree, his education, his righteousness, his ability to follow the law better than you. Right? He, he basically says, look, if anybody has any reason to boast, it's me. Like, I need you to get, like, if you want to go down that road, if you want to justify by comparison, then line up with me and I'm going to win. Like, you want to line up your good deeds, you want to line up your obedience, you want to line up your righteousness against somebody to see if you're better than them, you'll find somebody you're better than, but come at me. And you come at me and my whole life, I've done nothing but fear God and follow him every way I knew how even though ignorantly misguided. And then he he basically tells, but look, when I got saved, it didn't go like John Newton. Life didn't get progressively better for me. Life got progressively worse. I went from glory and honor and prestige and money, and I I had to quit my job. I I lost my friends. I lost my, my social status. I lost all those things. And live the rest of my life being beaten and persecuted and imprisoned and preaching and making tents. And then what he says about his past, verse 7 in Philippians chapter 3, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as trash, as dung, in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, look, I climbed that mountain you're trying to climb. I climbed that ladder, and I got it. I got there. And I count it all as loss. I count it all as a pile of, of dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ in my life. What are... What are you treasuring more than Christ? What do, you, what do you hold on to more than you hold on to Jesus? What do you look to more than you look to Jesus? You need to lay that down today. And listen, not lay it down because of guilt, not lay it down because the preacher said so. Lay it down because this guy who had all those good things said it's better to have Jesus and be beaten and imprisoned. It's better. I'm telling you, it's better to have the surpassing of that, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and making him known. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord? Have you been confronted with your sin by Jesus? Have you surrendered to the redeeming call of Christ, the risen Lord? Is your life a testimony to the transforming power of the treasure principle? Or is it just a good story of a good person? Because your testimony isn't about you. Your testimony is about who? Who's the one person? Jesus. Are you an active part of the family of God? Or are you just a spectator? 
When you read what Jesus and the Bible and Paul say about the local church, there is no opportunity or option to just be a spectator. It's not there. You got to jump in and be a part of the family. Are you living in the dark? Or have you been given the light? Have you engaged in, in the new purpose that Christ has given you? Have you been redeemed for a new purpose and you've engaged in that? Look, whether your story is like Saul's or like Newton's, there is hope for you in Jesus today. There is a calling for you today. There is a commission for you today. Here at Redemption, we believe that we exist to redeem the church and the community with the gospel by what? One more? One more. That's why we're here. That's the commission you've been given. And so since Easter, we've been talking about this idea of how Jesus can redeem anyone from anything at any point. But understand that redemption is not just to stop with you. You have been called to make disciples. Starting next week, starting next Sunday, we're going to go through a four-week series on making disciples. Head, heart, hands, habits. We're going to look at the head, the heart, the hands, and the habits of making disciples. And then we're going to talk about on that fifth week, we're going to talk about what it means to, to steward things well for the sake of making disciples. That you've been given everything you've been given for the purpose of making disciples. That we must be renewed in our mind. We must let Christ rule our hearts. We must use our hands. And it's all fueled by habits. All for the purpose, the new purpose given to us to make disciples. So everybody on three, one more time, say make disciples. One, two, three. That's what your life is about. That's your new purpose. That's your new calling. Your Damascus Road experience, your interruption by Jesus is so that you will make disciples. That's your purpose in life is to make disciples. So let's be about his work. Let's pray. God Almighty, as we think on your amazing grace for us, Lord, that you would use broken vessels like us. Or that is such a display of your perfect patience that I'm even standing here right now. Or that you allow me to open your word, much less speak to it, is such a display of your perfect patience. Lord, I pray that today those who don't know you would would surrender, would be confronted by their sins and convicted and they would confess and they would repent and fall in love with you and fall after you. Lord, that those that are your children, Lord, we wouldn't take it lightly and just be spectators in your family, that we would be a part of making disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.